0: Way to go. It's so fun to see the next generation catching the heart of God. And uh, hey, it's cold outside, but it's nice and warm in here. You guys made it. Way to go. And welcome everybody online as well. We do have a couple things to celebrate today. Uh, One is that if you've been with us the last few months, you know that God provided a church building and people for the building in an area we've been praying to reach called Fishers City over on the other side of Indianapolis And uh, we've been praying for a location pastor. God brought us an incredible uh, leader to lead that location. We've been able to hire him thanks to the generosity of so many of you. And uh, it is their second Sunday meeting over at Fishers. Can we just celebrate what God's doing? It's incredible. Uh, His his plan was a lot faster than ours for that location, but it's been amazing to see him provide. I do want to let you know, if you invited someone to a Christmas service, way to go. You broke our all-time forever Christmas attendance record was broken this last Christmas, but more important than that is that every single service here in Brownsburg, I was able to look out and see people who raised their hand and looked up and made eye contact with me that they were praying to ask Christ to be their Savior. So that's what it's all about. That's why we do what we do. And I want to let you know, yeah, we should celebrate that. That's a good call. Um, if If you did invite someone... Next Sunday or next weekend is a great time to invite them to come back because we'll be having some baptisms. It'll give them a chance to see what taking that next step looks like in their lives. Well, so I hope you had a good Christmas. Here's my favorite Christmas present. Some of you know I love Toyota Land Cruisers. This is a radio-controlled Toyota Land Cruiser with working mechanical differentials and I just absolutely love it. That's my son Jack there with me. Uh, we had a great Christmas a couple years ago. Jack and I were boogie boarding down in Florida. Uh, if you're not familiar with that, you've got like this foam float board thing and you kind of ride the wave in. And it was a day where the waves were really big and there were warnings that there was an undertow, a rip current. And if you're, fam- if you're not familiar with that, what it is is there are times when the waves will pull you out to sea. So we were aware that that was going on, but the waves were also really big. And being the dumber of the two genders... We decided to go for it, and we were having a blast. We were having a really good time. Uh, The waves were big, and then, sure enough, we felt ourselves getting pulled out to sea. We were able to fight against it and get back in, and we kept going, and then it pulled us out, and we could not get back in. And it's not like we're just, like, floating out there. The waves were big all the way out, so, you know, we're trying to, like, we're getting clobbered by these huge waves but we're getting pulled further and further out. And I remember swimming with just everything I had, all my muscles are burning, my lungs are burning. Jack was smaller at that time, and trying to drag him along with me. I just could not get us into shore. I remember this moment where my heart started just like palpitating, I could tell my body was starting to panic. And thankfully my brain remembered that saying that if you do get caught in a rip current, don't wear yourself out trying to get back in, swim like parallel to the shore so we started to do that but again with the waves and just kind of staying above water it was a ton of work and i remember just praying and thinking like god please help us to get back in and eventually after it carried us way way down uh, we were able to catch a wave that pushed us in just far enough past where that undertow was and then we were able to make our way in we got to the shore and jack being a kid at the time was like, that was fun. <laughs> and I'm like, we almost died, and I collapsed onto the sand. But I wonder if you can relate to that feeling in your life of swimming, if you will, as a metaphor, giving everything you've got to move in one direction, but life just carrying you in a different direction. Maybe it's uh, in your marriage, you're trying to just make it work, but it just seems like it's not going to work. Maybe it's finding. That person. Maybe it's in your health that you're, you know, you had a doctor appointment and they're like, yeah, you got to make some changes and you're making the changes, but the numbers aren't changing. Maybe it's your finances. Maybe it's a relationship, someone you love who's been pulled away from you and you're doing everything you can to restore that relationship, but it's not working. All right, here's the tension that we're going to address in our time it's something in all of our lives when your situation looks so hopeless. Your situation looks so hopeless that not even God could bring good from it. Now, I know if you've been in church for a long time and you really know your Bible, you'd say, well, John, God can do anything. I know. But we're a church that's real more than we are a church that's religious. And I know for me, there's a lot of times where I feel this way, even though in my mind I know God can do anything. There are days when I feel like I don't know, I just don't know how any good could come from this. And I'm sure that's the case in your life at times. In fact, right now, just between you and God, you don't need to tell me or anyone else, but I wonder as you start this new year, what is it that you most struggle to trust God with right now? What's that thing in your life that is, uh, it's delicate, it's tender, and it it actually is, is not just a situation, it connects to your very heart, your very identity, Maybe it's a child or a relationship or a dream. Maybe it's your health. If I could tell you today how to experience God in that struggle, in that thing where you just can't seem to move in the right direction, would you want to know what the Word of God says? I would invite you right now to just open your heart to God and ask Him to speak to you because I really believe this Bible lesson Uh, is a very spirit-led, powerful word of God for someone here today. I spent a lot of time praying for you guys this last week, and I did everything I could to not teach this story. And God just kept saying, you have to. There's someone here who just, you you need this story. It's a story that answers this question. It starts in Genesis 12, 4,000 years ago, with a guy named Abram, whose name will change to Abraham. And he and his wife had one dream desire in their life, and it was to have kids who would have kids so they could have a big family. They lived in a nomadic kind of tribal society. And in their mind, that was the big dream of their life, was to have their own kids and family, but they weren't able to. For decades, Abraham and Sarah, we don't know if she conceived and the pregnancies were miscarriages or lost pregnancies or if they weren't able to conceive at all. But one way or another, after decades of trying, they have no kids. This dream that they're swimming as hard as they can to make happen seems impossible. Seems like God is nowhere to be found. And in Genesis 12, God speaks to Abram. Now this is before any of the Bible was written, 4,000 years ago, long before Moses or any of these other Bible characters, and the Lord says to Abram, go from your country, leave everything you know. You know, your brothers, your uncles, the family that you do have, leave all of that. Leave your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. In other words, not only am I asking you to leave everything you know, I'm not even telling you where you're gonna go. I'm just kind of giving you a direction, and Abraham, I'll let you know when you get there. It's an unthinkable thing to do, And yet, with this unthinkable request from God, God's going to give an impossible promise. Here's what he says in verse 2. Abram, I will make you into a great nation. I I see your heart's desire that you want to be a dad, that you want to have a tribe, you want to have a a growing family. Abraham, I see your desire, and I raise you one. Not only are you going to have a big family, I'm actually going to make you into a great nation if you'll step out in faith and follow me. And Abraham, I will bless you. I'll make your name great. You will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth, I mean, how impossible does that sound? Everyone on planet earth is going to end up being blessed in some way because of you. Verse 4, this becomes a theme in Abraham's life. So Abram went. God gives this impossible promise, this unthinkable request, sell everything you've got, gather up and move, and Abraham moves. And it's our first answer to this tension of what can you do when your situation looks so hopeless. And the first thing is this, you can trust God specifically, not just generically like, yeah, I trust God. I mean that most delicate dream, that most precious child the thing that most cuts to the very center of your heart and your identity and who you are, you can trust God with that most valuable thing. You can. In fact, even right now, you could pray a prayer to God just saying, God, I want to trust you with that thing. I can't imagine letting go of that, but I want to trust you in that area. I mentioned that Abraham lived 4,000 years ago. So 2,000 years after Abraham is when God came to earth in the person of Jesus. And when Jesus was here at that time, Abraham's descendants had become a great nation, the Jewish nation, or the Israeli nation. Now, if you're uh, not familiar, Jesus himself was Jewish. Uh, The story of Jesus in the Gospels all takes place in what is modern-day Israel, what had been Israel for a couple thousand years at that point. All of Jesus' 12 disciples were Jewish or Israeli. And so God gives this impossible promise to Abraham, and 2,000 years later, it had come true. In fact, Romans was written about 30 years after Jesus rose from the dead, and Romans chapter 4 says this, against all hope, Abraham, in hope, believed. Now, I just want to emphasize what that little phrase, against all hope, means. It means that His situation was completely hopeless. Have you ever been in a completely hopeless situation? It's one where it's not like, oh, if those two things happen, then maybe things will work out. There's no two things to happen. There's nothing. And and what I love about this verse, I really think for someone here, you need to take a picture of that verse. You need to write down that reference. Because there's seven words here that you can memorize to take with you into the difficulties of life. Against all hope, Abraham, in hope, believed. Here's what it means. There was nothing Abraham could hope in in his circumstances. He and his wife were both really old. And were like, well, we hope that just maybe if we try again, it'll work. But they placed their hope instead in God. And then God showed up. And here's the thing. When your circumstances are hopeless, You can place your hope in God. You can still believe in the character, the nature, the goodness of God. And it's because Abraham did that. And then when God said, all right, Abraham, obey me in this, he did. He wasn't perfect, but he was consistent in obeying God. And he did end up becoming the father of many nations. In fact, Abraham had no idea just how big God's promise fulfilled would actually be. Here's what I mean. When God gave this promise to Abraham 4,000 years ago, God says, I'll make you into a great nation. You know what Abraham most likely envisioned? He probably envisioned about 4,000 people, you know, a few thousand people with some, you know, goats and cattle and sheep and like, in his mind, that was a great nation. It would have been at that time. These were pretty primitive times. But what God had planned was way bigger. You know, there's millions and millions of Jewish people who trace their ancestry back to him, but it's actually a lot bigger than that. God's plan was bigger, but it would also demand a lot more of Abraham than he expected. Did you know that today in the world, more than half of the world population looks back to Abraham either genetically or ideologically? Here's what I mean. In the world today, according to the Pew Research Center... One out of three people says, I'm a Christian. Now, the Christian faith, we're all about Jesus, and if you read the genealogy of Jesus, he's an ancestor of Abraham, and he came to fulfill the promises that God gave Abraham. So we are, in a sense, ideological followers of Abraham. Our religion traces back to him. But we're not the only one. Obviously, the Jewish religion does as well, and the Jewish people genetically do. So there are three religions in the world called Abrahamic religions who all trace or point back to Abraham. The third one is the religion of Islam, whose followers are called Muslims. Now, right now, Muslims account for about one in four people in the world. But over the next 27 years, because of a much higher birth rate in Muslim countries, they will be up to also about one out of three people in the world. So 27 years from now, which is the year 2050... Out of every three people in the world, one will be a Christian, one will be a Muslim. Now, Muslims also point back to Abraham. And the point is this. Abraham could have had no idea when God gave him this promise. How big the world would get, how large the population would get, what modern life looks like. But here we are, there's 8 billion people in the world, and 4 billion of us, our faith goes back to this God. And this kind of strange story that we're going to see today, in addition to those who physically came from him. Here it is on a timeline. You've got creation in the start of Genesis, and you might have noticed Abraham's story is in Genesis 12. Pretty soon after Noah, when God resets planet Earth, because things had gotten so evil. 2,000 years before Christ. It's going to be after Abraham that Moses comes along and actually writes the first five books of the Bible. If you've ever heard of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not lie, bear false witness, that all comes with Moses. So Abraham's living before the Bible even exists. God exists, but not the written word of God. When God comes to earth in the person of Jesus 2,000 years later, he fulfills the promises of the Old Testament. Um, I'm not going to do a history of religion class today, but I did did drop Islam on here because I do want you to know, you're going to Encounter Islam and Muslims more and more in your life over the next 27 years, so it's good for you to know some basics. Islam was not started by a Jewish person. Uh, Islam was started by a prophet named Muhammad, self declared prophet, who about six or seven hundred years after Jesus said that he saw some angels and they told him a new message. And if you read that message, it's about the opposite of the Christian message, they're very, very different. But, if you've heard the term cultural appropriation, that message kind of takes Abraham and says, Abraham is now our thing. And that's important for you to know, because even though these three world religions all go back to Abraham, they teach very different things. And as a result, you're going to see conflict around Jerusalem for your entire life until Jesus returns. Now, here's why. As followers of Jesus, Christians, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. So we don't really get into fighting over real estate when we're following Jesus. We care about souls, grace, love, eternal life, okay? Um, but those other two world religions that go back to Abraham, to them, a physical location is sacred. So when Muhammad said, oh, the Jewish stuff is now Muslim stuff, he named the three holiest sites in the world and said, Muslims, it's, it's your job to own these sites. Well, number three on his list is Jerusalem. And the reason why is the very story that we're about to look at in the life of Abraham. So I just tell you that to help you, you know, understand some world events that will happen in your life. There will be conflict around this specific land until Jesus returns. Genesis 22. At this point, Abraham and his wife Sarah have become pregnant, miraculously. I'm skipping about 10 chapters, I'm gonna summarize here, okay? God gives them a child. This child's name is Isaac. He's the fulfillment of the promise that they're gonna have a family that will grow into a tribe, that will grow into a great nation. So maybe you can relate to this part of Abraham. God asks you to step out, you step out to obey God. You give up something in your life, you're trying to follow God, And he starts to show you, here's how I'm going to work in your life. And then he asks you to do something else that's difficult. For Abraham, he has this promise, your family will become a great nation. But the promise hasn't been fulfilled yet. Isaac hasn't been married. He doesn't have grandkids. He just has this one child. And now, God is going to test Abraham. Now, can I just let you know, being tested by God is not Pleasant, typically, but it is a privilege. Being tested by God is not pleasant, but it's a privilege. You see, God doesn't just test anyone. If someone's a fool spiritually, they don't care about God, they're completely running away from God, he's probably not going to test them. He tests those who are actually seeking him and trying to serve him. Here's a good example. There's a test every year done here in Indianapolis called the NFL Combine. Maybe you've heard of it. It's NFL, well, it's athletes who have the capability and the potential to likely play in the NFL, the National Football League. And right here in Indianapolis, they all gather and all the scouts from all the teams gather and the coaches and the managers. And the most promising athletes are put through a battery of rigorous tests. Sprints and jumps and catches and agility tests, and everything's measured down to the millisecond and you know, captured from all these different angles. Can I let you guys in on a secret? This may surprise you. I've never been invited. (laughs) I don't know what it is, but I've, I've never been invited. You see what I'm saying? It's a rigorous test. It's not a pleasant test, but it's a privilege to be tested. And this is the same with God. So God's about to test Abraham, and I just want to prepare you right now. What you're about to hear at first is going to sound barbaric. Your skin's going to crawl. You're going to say, I don't know if I like this whole church God thing, but hang in there with me because you're going to see how God resolves it all. But this test on the surface is completely unthinkable. Genesis 22, verse 2, God's testing Abraham, and he says, Take your son, your only son, the one you love, Isaac go to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him there as a a burnt offering? Like, this isn't a metaphor. This isn't, like, like, literally strap him onto a pile of wood and start the wood on fire on a mountain that I will show you. What is going on? This is so weird. How is this in the Bible? I've read the whole Bible over and over again, and I can tell you definitively, God never tells any of the rest of us to sacrifice or harm another person. So what in the world is going on here? I mentioned earlier that all week long, I tried to say, God, I really don't want to teach this. It's such a weird text. And and he just kept putting you on my heart, that there's something going on in the lives of people about delicate things, precious things, and surrender. And so I would read this story, which I've read many times before, and I would read it and I would think about my only son, Jack. You see my wife and girls being silly in the background here. Where's my son Jack? And while I've read this story many times, and I've read it many times since he's been born, maybe it's something about his age. Right now he's at that age where He's a boy becoming a man, and he's strong, and he can, like, do all these great errands now, you know? It's like, hey, Jack, move those things in the backyard. Take the trash out. It's awesome. I have, like, free labor. (laughs) And as he's becoming a man, I have the privilege as a dad to get to talk with him about the world and how things work and values and decisions, and, and we have this tight, tight bond. And so as I prayed for you, and God kept pushing me back into this story, I just i just tried to imagine like what would this be like for god to say sacrifice your one and only son i mean i've got to be honest if god was like hey if you really love the people connection i i don't think i could do it i would sacrifice myself for all of y'all but i wouldn't sacrifice my son So I just kept leaning into this and praying for you guys. Look at verse 3, Abraham's response to God's unthinkable request. Early the next morning, Abraham got up, loaded his donkey. He took two of his servants and Isaac when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering. So what's Abraham doing? It doesn't make sense. His emotions are totally against what God's called him to do. But he just steps out He says, I I, I don't know where this is going. I don't know what God's doing. But God clearly spoke. I'm going to obey. Can you imagine what it was like to be like chopping firewood? Knowing what that wood was intended for, he sets out for the place God told him about. There will be moments of crisis in your life when you'll have to decide, is this really what I believe? God, Jesus, the Bible, eternal life. Is this really what I believe? You'll have many of those moments. But there will be certain moments where the conveyor belt of life is just moving you forward. And you'll say, I want to push pause. I just, I want to sit on a fence of indecision and be indecisive. And I want to think this through. But the conveyor belt's moving. There is no fence to sit on. And you just have to decide either I'm going to obey God or I'm not. And you just have those two options. That's where Abraham found himself. And with a ton of unanswered questions and a flurry of emotions, he just says, I'm I'm just going to obey God, one step at a time. They travel for three days, verse 4, on the third day. Isaac was as good as dead to him for three days. Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Verse 6, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering. He placed it on his son Isaac. So this is at the top of a mountain there at the bottom. He puts this hand-carved wood that he has hewn onto his son, and his son is going to carry the wood for his own sacrifice up the mountain. Different scholars debate, you know, how old was Isaac here? Well, clearly he wasn't five or six, because you don't put, like, a a bunch of firewood on a five- or six-year-old. It can maybe carry a couple pieces. Some scholars think he was maybe as old as 30. I I doubt that because I think he would have been married by that point. But he's got to be at least somewhere in that like 11 to 15 range to be able to carry a huge amount of wood up a mountain. And if you have a child or a grandchild or a nephew or a niece, can I just invite you to just think what it would be like to be Abraham walking up that mountain in conversation with that loved one knowing what god asked of you and not knowing how it's going to work out when i imagined what what would this be like for me and jack here's what kind of flooded my mind like a montage of you know, the hundreds of hours of walking him as a baby, the hundreds of, of times of him sleeping on my chest when he was little, the hundreds of hours of you know, holding his little hands and teaching him to walk, hundreds of hours of direction and redirection and conversation, bedtimes and meals. Verse 7, Isaac, as they're walking, pretty much says, Dad. Yes, son? Uh, The the flint is here to start a fire and the wood is here. But, you know, I know like we sacrifice lambs as a picture of God forgiving our sins. But where's the lamb for the offering? Verse 8, Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the offering. This is our first insight into what was going on in Abraham's mind surely he's not planning to kill his son but he's obeying God and he's either thinking God's gonna raise my son from the dead or God's gonna intervene in some way and here we get this hint he says God's gonna provide I don't know how God's gonna provide but God's gonna provide in fact there's an old name for God that maybe you've heard Jehovah Jireh And that's exactly the Hebrew here. Now, technically, the word Jehovah doesn't exist. It's the word Yahweh, Yahweh. Yahweh Jireh, the Lord provides. A little Bible history back in 1611 when they were making the King James Bible. They didn't know how to write Yahweh because it's essentially a bunch of breaths. You know, Hebrew is a very kind of back-of-the-throat, breathy language. And the word is literally... I can't even pronounce it. It's kind of like Yahweh, you know. They didn't know how to like transliterate that for English, so they added a J and a V and made Jehovah. So Jehovah and Yahweh are the same word. Yahweh Jireh, the God who provides. God himself will provide. God will provide himself. Son, I don't, I don't know. I don't have it all figured out, but I, here's what I do know. I know the God who called me to leave my home decades ago, he's a God who provides. I don't know how he's going to provide, but I know that he will provide. And here's where I want to encourage you today and speak to you. Wherever you feel like you are trudging forward in an impossible situation in your life. Or maybe what God has called you to go through is unthinkable. It's unthinkable to go through cancer. God's not the author of cancer, but in this world broken by sin, many of us will have to go through it. God's not the author of death. Satan brought that into our world. Until Jesus returns, we're going to have to grieve loved ones, and we will go through unthinkable heartbreak, unthinkable loss. And when you do, you have a God who is your provider, the Lord who provides. Now, what's interesting about Yahweh Jireh or Jehovah Jireh is that this has come to mean the Lord who provides, Largely from this story. But the word "Jira" literally means to see. The Lord who sees. He sees what you're going through. He sees what you lack. He sees your desire to be fulfilled and that you're trying to do it in the right ways. But the current is pulling you in other ways. He sees. And he provides. He sees and he provides. Faith is what carries you through the gap between. You know, for us, we see a need, and it feels like a lifetime until it gets provided for. But for God, the distance between vision of your need and provision for your need is barely even a syllable. He's the God who speaks, let there be light. He speaks things into existence. And where you feel you have the vision of, I just need this, but there's no provision, God has the provision. He's Yahweh Jireh, the God who sees and the God who provides. And Abraham models for us that when there's no hope in your circumstance, you can still place your hope in the goodness of God. Can I get an amen for that? That's that's our God. Verse 9 When they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar. You could read Genesis 22 and circle the verbs. Action, obedience, a long obedience in the same direction. One after another, step of obedience. He arranges the wood on it. He binds his son, Isaac. There's a whole other thing in here about Isaac's surrender. Abraham's an old geezer at this point. Isaac's probably 12 to 15. Pretty sure he could outrun His dad, and yet as his dad explains, I don't know, but I know who God is, he surrenders, lays on top of the altar. This is this horrific moment that seems unthinkable where Abraham pushes through his emotions with chosen obedience. Verse 10, he reached out his hand and takes the knife. Can you imagine just how long he let that sit there? starting to get dark i can't delay any longer he picks up the knife to slay his son this is a real story this is a real dad with an only child that him and his wife it's their only child it's their hope it's their future it's his most beloved if this makes you uncomfortable good but the angel of the lord called out to him from heaven Abraham, Abraham, you can imagine how quickly he drops the knife. <laughs> Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham, this whole thing was a test. I was never going to harm your son. And Abraham, you passed the test. You passed the test. And if you keep reading, God's going to essentially say, So, my promises to you, what I'm going to do through you, is going to expand to even another level because you believed in me as the God who sees and the God who provides. Verse 13 Abraham looked up, and there in the, the bushes and the trees, the kind of desert scrub called a thicket, he saw a ram. Not a Dodge pickup truck, by the way. Not a Dodge ram. What is a ram? It's a lamb. It's a male lamb that has grown up to be a sheep, and it has horns. And it was caught by its horns on these branches. Uh, This still happens because ram's horns kind of twirl around. Here's a video, modern day, of a ram. So can you just imagine, Abraham, the emotion... I don't know how God's going to provide, but God sees and God provides, and I'm just going to obey him. And in this moment of like, okay, I've got the knife, but I know God would never have me actually do this. And the angel says, Abraham, stop, you passed the test. And then he looks and he sees this ram, this sacrificial lamb, which would be a substitute. He took the ram, sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son, The knife that was going to slay his son cuts the throat of the sacrificial lamb instead. Now, if you're here and you're just completely repulsed by the thought of child sacrifice, good. It's horrific. I know it's a difficult story to read. And yet, if we had a drama up here and we had a bunch of actors and we all knew it was acting out and no one would get hurt, we wouldn't think it was as horrific, you know. Because Isaac never got harmed, and God knew that, but God put this story at the very beginning of the Bible for a really important reason. Because I said earlier, there's there's never child sacrifice condoned in Scripture for us, but there actually is one child sacrifice in the Bible. Very gruesome. When God the Father who created you saw that you would spend eternity separated from him. He saw all the difficulty in your life, all the sickness, the broken relationships, and saw that the only way to fix what's broken in you would be for some worthy substitutionary atoner to stand in our place of all of humanity and absorb our sins upon him. And I believe God put this story, he called Abraham to do this and put this story at the start of the Bible because he wants you to know the emotion that he has for you. What he's willing to sacrifice for you. In the Gospel of John, the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, he's around age 30. His cousin John the Baptist is a famous prophet and Jesus is walking out to him. Thousands of people are gathered and John the Baptist points at Jesus He says, behold, the Lamb of God. That Jewish audience, all of them, they sacrificed a lamb at least once a year, going all the way back to this story for the atonement of their sins. And they knew that the Lamb of God as a human is the one true Messiah who would take their sin punishment for them. And his cousin says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins, not just of the Jewish people, but of all people who will believe in him. God so loved you that he gave his one and only son, so that if you'll simply believe in him, if you'll simply receive this message, you won't perish when your body dies, but you'll have everlasting life in the presence of God. So I think of my son, Jack. We go down to Florida after Christmas every year, and we drove our radio controlled cars for hours in the sand. Here's the reality. Whether you believe this is true, whether you believe in God and Jesus, et cetera, here's the reality. There is a knife of death that hangs over every single one of us, whether you believe in God or not. There's a knife of death that will someday separate me and my son. There's a knife of death that will separate every mother and every daughter, our condition, our mortality. You can't buy your way out of it. You can't smart your way out of it. There's a knife of death that actually hangs over every single one of us. 2 Corinthians 5, God made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to absorb our sin, to become our sin sacrifice. Why? So that through Jesus, We would become not only accepted by God, but once you are in Jesus, God looks at you and he says, the very righteousness of God is on you and in you and defines you. I was moved to tears this week just thinking of my son while reading this story and just actually thinking, like, what would our conversation be? And as I was in tears thinking about that, I sensed the spirit of God just saying to me, John... I love you enough to willingly endure that pain. For God, it wasn't a drama. It wasn't a picture. He actually did sacrifice his son. And can you imagine the emotion for God the Father and God the Son who had been united? Everything in you that longs for relationship and connection, friendship, affection, everything in you that's relational, comes from you being made in the image of God. And the Father and Son for eternity past were in perfect, unbroken relationship. And then when Jesus leaves heaven to come to earth for about 30 years, the relationship is is further apart. No wonder Jesus was always breaking away from the crowd to pray to the Father. They missed each other. God didn't have to go through that discomfort, but then... When Jesus goes to the cross, Matthew 27, as he absorbs our sin upon him, God the Father, who's sinless, can't look on, and he turns his back on his son. And for the first and only moment in all of human history, all of eternity, the Father and Son are divorced, they're separated. And it's in that moment that Jesus cries out in Hebrew, My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? He was obeying the Father because in Luke 22, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane before the cross, he's um, overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He's sweating drops of blood. He says, Father, if there's any other way, I can't stand to be separated from you. If there's any other way to rescue her, if there's any other way to heal him from cancer, if there's any other way to give them eternal life, Father, Dad, is there any other way? And three times the father says to the son, there is no other way. I need you to do this. And as a good son, Jesus says, Father, not my will but yours be done. I just want you to grasp the emotion that God has for you. The God who created you sacrificed his son to rescue you and to forever answer the question whenever you wonder how much does god love me does god still love me after everything i've done could he still love me i've run so far away from him does he still love me he loves you he loves you enough to be separated father and only son for you i want to give you four reasons i'm not going to unpack these you might take pictures of them if you're a note taker or scribble real fast Four reasons why you can trust God with that very valuable, delicate thing in your heart that you fear losing. Four reasons today why you can trust God with it. And the first is because he sacrificed his most valuable thing for you. It proves that he's trustworthy. Second, you can trust him with that deep, heart, tender thing because he has proved with actions that he does have your best in mind. There will be moments like Abraham where it doesn't look like that, it doesn't feel like that, but faith says, against all hope, I will believe in hope. God always has my best in mind. Third, you can trust him with the valuable things you fear losing, because he raises Surrendered things that you die to, he raises them back to life. I could give you 12 examples of this in my life. Uh, of me dying to something that I want and just saying, okay, God, not my will but yours be done. And then he comes back around and he brings it to life in a new way. My my undergrad is in journalism. My whole dream through my teens and my early 20s was to be a professional writer. I was a professional writer, I had this goal published my first best-selling book by age 30. At age 27, God called me to leave all of that to pastor a church of 40 people. And I knew that to pastor them well meant I wasn't going to be writing. And I remember telling my wife, because we would drive from Scottsdale, Arizona, which is in the valley, up the mountain to this retirement community. And I said, Babe, I feel like Abraham going up the mountain with Isaac, that I have to take a knife and stab it in the heart of my dream of writing. I completely died to it. I said, I I don't ever have to write again. It's fine. And then three years later, God sends a publisher my way and an agent, and I do a book, and it became a national bestseller, not because I could have forced it. I died to that. And then he brought it back to life. It's just one example, but I can tell you in Christian marriage, to have a healthy Christian marriage, you're going to have to die to yourself a lot. And if you will, he will raise your relationship to life in ways that you can't imagine. Following Jesus requires dying to our own desires at times, but he always raises those things back up to life. Fourth, you can trust him with the valuable thing you most fear losing because he truly does work all things together for your good. He truly does. Just like this story of Abraham and Isaac, Abraham had no idea how big the promises of God would be, that someday it would affect more than half the world population in a world that he couldn't have even imagined. Now, very briefly, I just want to strengthen your faith by showing you how much God is orchestrating human history. Because that crazy story that we just heard Took place 4,000 years ago in locations that are very documented. The story ends, verse 14. So Abraham called that place Mount Moriah, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said in Hebrew, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. Mount Moriah. You wanna know where Mount Moriah is today? It's right here. This is Mount Moriah, it's in Jerusalem, in Israel. And we know exactly this place where this sacrifice happened. About a 1,000 years after Abraham, there was a Jewish-Israeli king, King David. Israel was larger than its modern territory at that time. And here in Jerusalem, which was Jewish territory 3,000 years ago, he bought this land from another Jewish person, And then his son, Solomon, built a monumental temple to God in that very location where the story of Abraham and Isaac happened. History happened, and King Nebuchadnezzar, around 600 years before Jesus, wiped out a lot of the Jewish people, and he tore that temple down. Then, about 70 years later, another Jewish guy, Nehemiah, who worked in that administration, goes back and he rallies the Jewish people and they rebuilt the temple. That is the temple and that location that Jesus stood in when he said, I am the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world, where he claimed to be the Messiah. And then, and all this is history outside of the Bible, it's in the Bible, but it's also documented in non-Christian writings. About the year A.D. 70, about 70 years after Jesus was born, um, the Romans came through and they wiped that temple out again. So all that's left of that temple is on the left where you see that corner and the wall goes through there. That's, that's what's left of it. It was a 37-acre stone monument to God. And so for the Jewish people, it's the holiest site in the world. For the Muslim people, it's the third most holy. For us, our faith is in a new heaven and a new earth and in Jesus, but it's still a very significant place. The Lord will provide. Now, here's what's interesting. If, if you've heard about Jesus' death on the cross, it happened on a mountain. A lot like the son Isaac, he carried his own wooden cross up the mountain to his sacrifice. That mountain is known as Golgotha, the place of the skull. Here is an aerial view from Google Maps or satellite imagery On the right is the Temple Mount, so it's somewhere roughly in that area where the story of Abraham and Isaac happened 4,000 years ago. Then 2,000 years later, God comes to earth in the person of Jesus. And where is he crucified? Well, Golgotha is less than half a kilometer from exactly where this story with Abraham and Isaac happened. And in fact, if you were to remove all the modern development and buildings, what you'd see is that they're two peaks of the same mountain ridge. So 4,000 years ago, when this guy through obedience obeys God and then says, Yahweh, Jireh, the Lord sees and provides and the Lord will always provide. 2,000 years later, God provides a substitute for you and me right there. Here's the point. With God, every death leads to a resurrection. The reason we're here, the reason I'm telling you this story, the reason God has changed my life, is that the story of Jesus doesn't end with him dying on the cross. After three days, when he was as good as dead, he rose from the dead. And so demonstrated it to his followers and his disciples that they faced death saying we will not recant that we've seen him risen from the dead. And it changed human history. I just want to give you a little application here, okay? We often think of our life, there's going to be these forks in the road, there's going to be these key moments in your life and you might think that those moments are going to be like a Super Bowl game where everyone's watching you and there's lights on. But Abraham's moment that defined world history. It was just him and Isaac. There were no other human witnesses, but the angels were watching, and the demons were watching, and the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit were watching, and you need to know that when you're alone, and you feel like no one's watching, God sees you, and your choice to believe him, and walk by faith, and believe that he provides, and he sees, and it might not make sense, but I'm going to trust what he says in his word, it can shape history. It can change the lives of people. And just like Abraham, 4,000 years later, he's looking down from heaven. Hebrews 11 described it the great cloud of witnesses that's cheering us on. And now he sees billions of people affected by a moment of obedience. If you believe in Jesus, if you've trusted in him, 4,000 years from today, you'll be alive. And you'll be able to look back and you'll see quiet moments that no one else knew of where you chose God, you chose obedience. And there will be people in heaven. There will be good things that happen. So final question, will you choose today to believe like Abraham? God, you truly have my best in mind. I don't see it. I don't feel it. I have no other hope. But against all hope, I'm going to believe in my hope that you're a good God. And I'm going to trust in you. Let me pray that over you right now. Father. For every person online, for every person in this room, Lord, you see the deep pain in our hearts. You see the unthinkable things that we're facing. But we're reminded today, Lord, that you give us impossible promises. And you keep your promises. God, you made a nomadic rancher in a really primitive world, the father of many nations. Through his descendants, both genetic and ideological, hospitals, universities, abolitionists who ended slavery, you have blessed all people on earth. Longer lifespan, increased freedom, literacy. And Lord, we're just barely beginning to see what your kingdom come will be like when you return, Jesus. But right now, as my brothers and sisters trudge their way up various mountains of obedience, would you strengthen their faith? Would you make us a people who believe, no matter what we feel or what we see, that our Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh Jireh, is the one who sees and who provides? We love you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if today's episode encouraged you or helped you in any way, we would invite you to keep following Jesus with us. We send out a daily video text devotional. You can receive that. And you can learn how to gather with us online or in person for our weekend services. All of that is available over at cp.news. That's the letter C, the letter P, dot news on your phone or desktop or tablet browser. Thanks again for joining us. And please join me again next week for the Connection Point podcast.